going to start this morning uh, just a short snippet from the life of William Tyndale. Some of you have heard of him or held a Bible that had his name on it. That's kind of a cool thing. Um, he translated the Bible into English from Greek and Hebrew in England. But in 1494, that's right, 1494, he was born and he was a bright fellow, fluent in seven languages, familiar with Greek and Hebrew. If there was a Forbes Brightest Young Minds list of 1494, uh, he would have been on it, but he didn't apply his, his brilliance uh, to career, to industry, to profit, to uh, vocation. He had a burdened heart for the men and women in his country. And he had a burdened heart for them to know Jesus, for them to know the gospel, for them to be saved and to be transformed. And there was a barrier. The barrier was they didn't have this in their language. And so William Tyndale set out to translate so that his fellow countrymen and women could read the scriptures for themselves. And of course, no one was on his side. He presented the idea to a number of persons who could finance the project, and they said, absolutely not. If you go back and look at that era in the previous uh, couple hundred years, uh, those in authority were not in favor of us commoners having access to the scripture. The sense was that most people are too stupid to read and to understand and to know what to do with it. So these highly trained individuals would be the only ones who have access and the only ones then to tell you what it, it said. And so it made, it made us as, as commoners very, um, very vulnerable. And so William Tyndale had to leave the region to begin this project and had to work in kind of obscurity to remain safe. And in 1535, uh, the new t- 1525, uh, he got the New Testament done and started smuggling it into England. Quickly, the authorities began to buy up copies of his New Testament to keep them from the general public, uh, which only uh, furthered his project and funded additional copies being printed. Um, this is what they said. This is what the authorities said about his work. Imagine this is an Amazon review. He says, it's not worthy to be called Christ's testament, but rather Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master, Antichrist. So they could have said, we don't like it. We could have, think, could have said he missed a few words. It says, this is not Christ's testament, but rather Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master, Antichrist. Gives you a sense of what they thought about his work. Uh, ten years later, this guy named Henry Phillips kind of infiltrates uh, William Tyndale's life and circle, and, and he's working in relative obscurity, trying to, to stay in the margins and stay distant for his own safety. And this Henry Phillips fellow kind of infiltrates his camp, uh, builds a bit of a relationship, and eventually lures him out of hiding, out of safety, out of this group, into the waiting arms of soldiers. And so sitting in a Netherlands prison, waiting verdict, He writes this. He says, Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and good, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace, or treason unto his highness to read the word of thy soul's health. For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, or popes? Like most stories of the 1300s and that era, uh, this doesn't end well uh, for him. They bring him into the public square, give him an opportunity to recant, to unsay what he said, undo what he's done. 
he, of course, refuses. They tighten the chains. They tighten the ropes. Uh, they strangle him and then burn his body. So welcome to church. <laughs> I hope you're encouraged. No, but we, we start with uh, someone like William Tyndale because isn't it just clear from his life that he was all about Jesus? Isn't it just clear from a, a small snippet, not perfect in any way, but isn't it clear from a small snippet that he was all about serving his Savior? He was all about his master's business. And so the question to us as we enter into Genesis 15 this morning is, are you all about Jesus? Is he your everything? Is he Lord of your life? To put it a, put it a different way, is he the main course? It's fast approaching lunchtime. At varying levels, we're hungry. And so if you're headed to a restaurant after church, you're going to get a menu, and you're going to look down the menu, and the items will be listed, and they're identified not by their side items, right? They're identified by the main course. Chicken, filet mignon, coos bay caught salmon. They're identified by the main course, right? It's the most important part. What determines the value, how much the plate costs, and then there's side items that go around it. It might be green beans, it might be mashed potatoes, it might be a side salad. And the side items are tasty, they might even be healthy, but they're side items. And so we don't eat the green beans on the side, get full, and think I'm going to pass on the filet. Right? We, we start with the filet, and if there's room left, we'll get to the green beans and the other things. And we might even bypass those altogether if there's something better waiting, like coffee and dessert. So they're important. They're on the plate. They're tasty. They're useful, but they're side items. And, and so as we go into Genesis 15, Genesis 15, I just want us to consider that for some of us, Jesus kind of is, is just a side item in our life. And the main course is our own ambition, our own appetite, our own purposes, our own agenda. And so we see in the life of William Tyndale this sense that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is Lord of his life. As we go into Genesis 15, is Jesus Lord of your life? If he's Lord of your life, you're going to find an increasingly yielding posture towards his will, towards his ways, towards his plan. If he's not Lord of your life, you're going to find yourself increasingly making uh, a pattern of decisions that center around your own wisdom, your own understanding, your own pragmatic sense of what has value, what doesn't have value, what I'd like to do, what I wouldn't like to do. If Jesus is Lord of your life, you're going to find yourself uh, increasingly wanting his glory, his recognition, wanting people to see you or see things you do and actually see him. If he's not Lord of your life, everything is going to come back to you. What do you deserve what recognition are you owed? What comfort, uh, what security, what privilege ought you to have? As we consider Genesis 15, is Jesus Lord of your life? Is he the main course? Is he the only course? Open with me to chapter 15. I'm going to read the first six verses. I want us to see from Abram, from this text, Jesus is worthy to be Lord of our life. Jesus is worthy to be the main course, in part because he is a father who is attentive to our fear. He's a father who is attentive to our fear. Let's look at the first six verses. Genesis 15. After these things, 
The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and it says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir, verse 5. And he brought him, God brings him outside, and he says, Look towards the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be, verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. A couple things going on here. Uh, One, recall that Abram has just been in battle. And so the Lord has just showed him that he's a shield. And now he responds to Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield and verbalizes something that he had just shown him. Do you see that, do you see that God doesn't want Abram to remain in a posture of fear? Do you see that, that God wants Abram to find his refuge in him? In Psalms 35, it says he, has a, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God won't force us to take refuge in him. But God will show us his power. His spirit will speak to our hearts. We'll see it in scripture and in life. And and we are invited to take refuge in him. It's not altogether different than uh, saying, Lord, you promised to never leave me. It was written on the board, so it has to be true. Why do I feel alone? Uh, It's not altogether different than saying, Lord, you promised to hold my salvation secure, to be, hold my faith secure. Why do I feel like it's frail? Why do I feel like it's faltering? Why do I feel like it's weak and thin and crumbling? God doesn't want Abram to remain in this posture of fear. And so he says, fear not, I am your shield. And as Abram expresses concern about God's plans, hey God, uh, I'm doing my part. <laughs> I, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. There's a disconnect between Abram's reality and the promise that God has for him. And so God takes him outside. Not takes him outside like some of you have been taken outside by your fathers. God takes him outside and and you can just imagine God. You can just imagine them close looking up at the stars and and God just saying, isn't this incredible? Like, wow, you know, isn't this beautiful? You can imagine maybe a pause. You can imagine silence looking up and God says, you know, Abram, count, count the stars. I can't. <laughs> so shall your offspring be. So shall your inheritance. So shall your lineage be. This is what I'm going to do. And what's neat here is, is God doesn't dismiss that Abram and Sarah are in a difficult spot. She is barren. She has promised a child and she is barren. She has promised a child of the promise and they don't have an heir together, which means not only is God's promise in jeopardy from their vantage point, certainly in jeopardy of of coming true. No evidence that what God said he's going to do, he's actually going to do. Nothing that they can look to and say, yeah, God's doing it. And she's old. So, So Abraham can't say, well, we've got a few more years. We'll just keep trying. She's old. She's kind of past that. God takes him out and says, look at this. Don't you think that I'm bigger than Sarah's barrenness? Don't you think I'm bigger than this 
circumstance that just doesn't look like it's materializing. Um, and so I, I might ask you, do you expect good things from God? Do you expect him to be good towards you? Not do you expect red carpet? Do you expect everything to be easy? Do you expect marriage to be one joyful, blissful moment after one joyful, blissful moment? But do you expect God to be good to you? I heard that. Turn to Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. Do you expect God to be good to you? Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, God who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us, gave Jesus up for me, gave Jesus up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, is this a promise that you're going to never have a financial struggle? I hope we've established that that's not the case. Uh, is this a promise that you're going to never have difficulty? I think we've, we've moved past that. Do you see the posture of your father towards you? Do you see the posture of the Lord towards us? Uh, I envision, uh, you know, gift giving and, and Christmas and the idea of all these gifts wrapped and under the tree and just waiting for your son or daughter, just waiting for your spouse, just waiting for a family member to come and, and open this gift that you maybe had for six months. You knew they were just going to love it. You bought it early or you saved for a while and you spent a fortune. Just wait. Like, do you have that sense that you have a father that is good and wants to be generous and that that is how he thinks about us? I find myself often uh, mimicking what I see in Abram here, this sense of, but, but, but God, I don't see it happening or that's the future. And so Abram has seen God's faithfulness in the past, right? He's seen God's faithfulness in Egypt when he kind of should have been smoked. Uh, He saw God's faithfulness at battle uh, and that mess. uh, And he still has trouble looking forward and anticipating that God's not going to leave him, that God's not going to abandon him, that God is going to continue to be faithful, even if it's difficult, even if it's unsavory, even if there's challenges ahead, that God is going to be faithful and good in and through those. And so uh, I find myself mimicking that with Abram, grateful for salvation, grateful for the Lord's provisions in my life, grateful for a Christian family that, that pointed me in a good direction, and all the while thinking, I'm going to have to fend for myself in the future. Or this past faithfulness is going to sort of end or be lessened and it's going to be up to me to continue. I think about it with uh, family and, and kids. Thankful for their health. Thank you for their little developing minds and hearts and, and spiritual interests and personalities. Fearful, will God be near them in their future? Will God be faithful to me as a confused father in their future? Uh, and, and so... Abraham has his fear, his concern, we'll see his doubt, uh, and I would just constantly push us to the character uh, of our father to draw near, and even here with Abram, and we're going to see in a minute, provide clarity and more details, this reassurance is God doesn't come and just fix things for Abram, he just comes and is near, and said, this is what I'm going to do, and that nearness leads to verse 6, look what Abram what is said about Abram in verse 6. Uh, often quoted verse. 
It says, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What we see is that Abram is developing a belief-driven obedience that God is who he said he is, and so Abram can follow. That God is going to do what he said he would do, and so Abram can follow. And even though Abram can't see it, even though it hasn't materialized yet, even though there's significant evidence to cause Abram to believe that it's never going to happen, Abram is beginning to believe, and that belief-driven obedience allows it to be said of him at this point that Abram had faith and that it was credited to him as righteousness. Can't we all relate to and agree that there are plenty of instances in life where God is at work and we can't see it materializing in a way that seems remotely positive yet? And think of a friend who probably, gosh, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, had a pornography addiction. And that thing surfaced in his marriage and created a sense of discontent between him and his wife. He and his wife. We want our marriage to be better. That season of discontent was used by the Lord to open their hearts to getting help. That help led to this really incredible journey whereby God transformed each of them individually and them together such that their marriage became kind of the gold standard, the example of what transformation can look like personally and together, of God's intention for us to be stronger uh, together, to each play a complementary role in each other's growth and sanctification. And, and it was evident to all. And so that transformation became an occasion for me to observe that in their lives and for this couple and this man to be a, a mentor and a friend. And so I hope that because of what I've observed... I will be a better husband to Nicole. I hope that because of what we observed, Nicole will be a better wife to me. I hope because of what we've observed, our kids will have fewer barriers between them and Jesus because we will be more often pointing them to Jesus rather than causing them to say, mom and dad are nuts. They act really nice at church and they always smile and they get in the car and it's, watch out, what, what happened? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where did they go? Where are my mother and my father? Now, I know my friend prayed often to the Lord to take this away. I know that my friend prayed often to the Lord, give me victory over this temptation. Give me victory over this sin. And, and things have gotten certainly much, 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 much better in that regard. But it's interesting to look backwards and to see that it was that moment and the couple other triggers that created a posture of humility and openness to be open to what God wanted to do and the impact is so much greater than they will ever know because they've become mentors to so many and so so many marriages are better so many kids are, are now more authentically and honestly pointed to Jesus because of their parents thriving marriage and, and so the impact is, is having an incredible ripple effect the impact here with Abram is going to have an incredible ripple effect far beyond what Abram will ever see. And we see that God all along was at work, even though to Abram, it must have seemed like God was silent for a time. It must have seemed like God was wrong 
for a time, it must have seen like nothing was happening. Nothing was progressing. Abram is not perfect, but he takes God at his word. Sometimes there is a profound disconnect between what we see around us and what we know God has called us to. Sometimes there is an incredible disconnect between what we see around us in our homes, in our places of work, in our own hearts and lives, internally with the Lord, an incredible disconnect between what we see and what we know God has called us to. And so if you're in that season right now, would you consider that it's often in those seasons that God brings about a humility and an honestness an honesty about us to make us open to his work. It is often in those seasons that our fingers are gently, sometimes violently, peeled off of the lesser, peeled off of the idols, peeled off of our ambitions, peeled off of the things that we're using to find purpose and meaning and security and joy in life that are wildly insufficient. And it's in those seasons that he peels our hands off to make us open to his greater, to him. It is often in these moments where we learn to wait on the Lord. For those of you that have horror story after horror story of barging through doors that God didn't intend to ever be open to you, isn't it meaningful to learn to wait on the Lord? Isn't it meaningful to learn to wait on the Lord and to be okay with not knowing what's next, being more confident in who's next to you? These are all things that God seems to do in these moments of confusion, of frustration, uh, of even despair. And so if that's where you're at this morning, just pause. Don't try to run out of town as quickly as you possibly can. Uh, maybe a red flag should be going off that, that God is at work and he is doing open heart surgery and this is a really significant and meaningful thing and you don't want to get off that table until he's done. Some ask with regards to uh, number chapter 6 here, does this, or verse 6, does this mean that Abram uh, was so good, so righteous, that he earned God's favor and earned his salvation? And so uh, if you have that question, or even if you don't and you want to, you want to follow along, turn to James chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. Uh, and I, I just want you to see that it is his faith, his belief-driven uh, obedience that what is that is what is commended. In other words, his faith leads to his belief. His faith leads to his, his following. And he was not somehow greater than all other human being with regards to obedience. Uh, James 2, uh, 21, 22 say this. 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, 22 says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We know that God doesn't pursue us because of who we were, who we are, or who we could be. He pursues us because of who he is, right? He pursues us because of who he is. He doesn't pursue us because of what we might do. He doesn't pursue us because of what we have done. He doesn't pursue us because of our capacity for incredible kingdom work, right? He pursues us because of what he has done. As we continue to see that he is worthy of being the main course, the only course, uh, that he is worthy of being Lord of our lives, we see that he is attentive 
to Abram's fear. We see also that he is attentive to Abram's doubt. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 7 through 21. Look at how the Lord draws near to Abram in a, in a pretty spectacular way. Verse 7 says this, and he, uh, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Okay, so uh, the Lord says, I am Yahweh. (laughs) I'm in charge. Uh, This is one of only four times in the entire Old Testament that the Lord does this. Uh, This is kind of like uh, your father calling and saying, Nathan, this is your father speaking, right? That's not a conversation I'm looking forward to. Uh, That's probably not a conversation I uh, wanted uh, to be happening, but something really important is coming. Uh, he's not clarifying that he's my father because I'm confused, right? Uh, he's saying, this is your father speaking. There's an authority thing here. This is a good time to pay attention. I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But, he's, but he, Abram, says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, he says, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Uh, The birds of prey, uh, possibly symbolic of the attack that would come upon Israel, the attack that would come upon Israel. Abram's descendants and and the protection, the provisions that would be made available to them. But Abram drives them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 16, and they shall come back here in a fourth generation for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites who are presently occupying the land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, then the sun had gone down. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. To your offspring I give this land. There's a lot going on here, isn't there? A lot going on here. Maybe three or four more weeks worth of Sunday messages, um, but we're going to go through it in about 12 minutes, approximately. Abram says, how am I going to know that this is going to happen? Uh, Some who have written on Genesis Genesis would say that that is a culturally normative thing to do, to ask for a sign, not necessarily a sign of doubt or a sign of distrust. Uh, It seems to read as distrust a bit, and on top of that, God seems to come and give him a lot of details. You don't really see that from the Lord all too often, but he comes and he gives Abram a lot of details that would seem to make the case that maybe Abram had some questions or a possible a little bit of doubt, and we see that the Lord is worthy of being Lord of our lives. The Lord is worthy of being the main course, not just because he's attentive to fear, in part also because he's attentive to our doubts and responsive to our doubts. So he says this to Abram. He says in verse 13, your offspring will be servants in lands that is not theirs. 
He says they will be afflicted for 400 years. You can maybe imagine Abram saying, great, can you get to the blessing? Verse 14 says, God will bring judgment upon their oppressors. So God's attentive. God's going to be responsive to that. He's going to rectify it. He says they will leave slavery, not just to go free, but they will leave very wealthy. Then in verse 15, he says, Abram, you are going to go down to your fathers. You are going to live a long, peace-filled life. And then he says, your descendants are going to come back in the fourth generation when the Lord is ready to move against the sin of the Amorites. So that happens, this really remarkable unfolding of what God is intending to do. Uh, And then you have this scene of God, Abram, kind of hard to know what state Abram's in. It says a deep sleep, a great terror, a great darkness fell over him, almost as if, Abram, this is no longer about you. (laughs) Almost as if to say, Abram, this is no longer your part to play. Just hold on a second. Uh, And then the pot, the the oven, um, and the torching oven, and the the smoke, and the fire uh, pass through the covenant. And so uh, the covenant idea is if we were going to maybe buy and sell land or make some significant exchange, we might enter into a covenant together. And, And so at the time, one of the ways to do that was to take these animals. These particular animals are related to the sacrificial system, except for the the birds, but they cut the animals in half. They separate them, essentially making a pathway through this bloody mess. Uh, And then the two parties that are making the covenant, the two parties that are entering into this transaction, would pass through together, uh, signifying that they understand, that they agree, that if I break my part of this deal, this is what happens to me. So it's kind of a big deal. (laughs) It's kind of something to take seriously. And Abram's over here kind of knocked out, kind of, kind of asleep. Some of you have worked graveyard shifts, and you know when you get off of a graveyard shift, you get home, and the moment you're not standing, you're out. Uh, Abram's out. And not two people go through the middle, not Abram and God, not Abram and the smoking pot. They're not, you know, joined arms or holding hands or walking shoulder to shoulder or even one in front of the other. The smoking pot goes through, the fire, the smoke goes through. Throughout the Old Testament, fire, uh, smoke is, um, shows the presence and the power of God. Think about Mount Sinai, think about the tabernacle, think about the pillar of fire and the cloud that guided the Israelites to the promised land. And so we see here the presence of God going through, uh, the presence of God saying, this covenant is unconditional. In other words... It is on me, God is saying, to bring this about. It is on my power to carry this out. It is my goodness, it is my character that is the basis for this, not Abraham's obedience, not Abram's descendants' obedience. Uh, In comparison to Moses, some of you are familiar with the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus chapter 19, we read a little bit about that. This is an example of a conditional covenant. Exodus 19 verses, uh, let's see, Five and six it says this. Now, therefore, God to Moses, if you will indeed obey my voice and if you will keep my commands, there's the if. It's conditional. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commands, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. These are the words the Lord says that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's a, a conditional covenant. Okay, That's what we do at home when the kids are not obeying, and we say, if you will clean your room, you can watch a show. That's a conditional covenant. What's happening here is Abram's out. God walks through. God says, this is on me. I'm going to bring this about. And so as we pause there for a minute, I want to go back to Genesis 14 last week. Genesis 14 is this story that is interrupted for like two or three verses by this guy Melchizedek. And we've talked about last week how Melchizedek is kind of a strange figure, not a lot written about him. But it does say there's no genealogical record of where he came from, when he began, or when he ended. It also says that he was a priest of God Most High, that he is both king of Salem, king, and priest. And so then, in the New Testament, when we begin to talk about Jesus, there's the phrases like, Jesus coming in the order, or in the likeness, of Melchizedek. And so what we see is that Melchizedek, Two or three verses, not a lot there, prepares us, causes us to begin to anticipate, is a, a foundational piece to be able to recognize Jesus as Messiah, to create a framework to start to understand what Jesus as Messiah, with no beginning and no end, who would be king and priest, who would rule forever. These tiny little nuggets in Genesis 14 begin to prepare our hearts and our minds to be anticipating looking for and receptive to Jesus as Messiah. And so now, one chapter later, Genesis 15, we continue to build on that because we tend to come to Abraham and think about James 2 where it says that he was a friend of God, that his righteousness or that his faith was so great and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so we look at Abram and say, all right, if I can just do what Abram did, let me just like learn everything about Abram. I'll do exactly what he did and maybe God will say, there's Nathan, friend of God. And so I hope in the, just the four weeks that we've been in Abraham, we're starting to see that it's really not about Abram. I hope that we're, we're starting to see it's really about the God that Abram serves. And so this unconditional covenant prepares us for Jesus, prepares us for the fact that Jesus paid the entirety of our debt. Jesus paid it himself. This wasn't like going in with your parents to buy a house. I'll do the 80%, you do the 20%, that gets us there. This isn't like student loans, where if you pay off your student loans for a significant amount of time, at some point they'll wipe the remaining principal out if you've been faithful for enough time and you work in the right industry. This is Jesus paying the entirety of our debt, not because of something we've done, unconditional in that nature, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus to be sin, Jesus who knew no sin, to be it for us, to pay the entirety of our debt. That's not something that we did. That's not something that we contributed to. That's not something that we're paying out of our piggy bank, you know, 50 cents a month for the rest of our lives to, to begin to repay that. He paid our debt. We see in John 10, 10, or in chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. He says, I give them eternal life and nobody's going to take them from me. So 
me belonging to Jesus is not something that I maintain through good church attendance and maybe giving and helping out every once in a while and maybe helping a needy family that needs a little help. I'm held tight by Jesus. It is his righteousness, not mine, that keeps me there. It is his faithfulness, not mine, that keeps me there. And so as we build Genesis 14 and now on to Genesis 15, we see that we're starting to be prepared to anticipate, to look for a priest and king who will rule forever. And we're starting to get the framework and a foundation for the gospel, the fact that it is an unconditional covenant and where we bring nothing to the table. Abram's over here on the side. It's kind of like a newborn uh, in, in the car seat. And if you have a newborn or if you've had one recently or if someone in your family does, you know that car seats get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they almost don't fit in cars anymore. Um, they're bulletproof. They're fireproof. They have five-point harnesses. And so when you place this delicate little helpless child into that car seat, strap them in. It takes, it takes a while. And the car goes around a corner or slams on the brakes. They're not held tight by their ability to cling to the seatbelt, right? They're not held tight by their ability to sit just right and brace themselves uh, for the impact. They're held tight by that five-point harness, right? And so as we think about salvation, as we think about what Jesus does, Jesus is the five-point harness. We are that helpless, weak, defenseless infant held tight, held securely by nothing of the child's doing, right? By nothing of the child's doing. And so we see that in this just incredible unfolding of God's plan before Abram, not only do we have this example whose faith is commended, who's called the friends of God, and that's really meaningful, but it's trumped by this bigger story that God is telling and sharing and showing through the life of Abram to cause us to start to look forward and to anticipate the Messiah, and to understand that from cover to cover, it's building towards Jesus and the gospel, and this unconditional covenant points us and prepares us to identify and be responsive to Jesus and the gospel and his free gift of life. As you think about uh, wherever in the story you put yourselves, uh, we want to be responsive to Abram's example And we want to be able to look at our circumstances and say, I don't understand, but I trust God. We want to be able to handle some bumps and bruises and say, I didn't understand before, now I don't understand, and I'm a little irritated, but I trust God, and and keep going. Uh, And and so there's a really significant thing happening there with the life of Abram. Uh, But our first response needs to be to Jesus. Our first response needs to say, is Jesus the main course? Is he the only course? Is he the purpose, the direction the basis of everything that I do. The faith is a meaningful part of this conversation. The passage as a whole, where we're going, points us to Jesus, points us to the gospel. And so the ultimate and the first response is to bow our knee to Jesus. From there then, we work out what this faith thing is all about. The invitation is to faith. The invitation is to respond to Jesus with the same loving, the same belief-driven obedience that we see here from Abram. Belief-driven obedience. I believe who you are, so I believe what you say. I understand who you are, so I can have confidence that even though I, I don't understand what I see, I understand who's next to me. In, in wrapping up, um, some of us live as if, if 
following Jesus equates to making a deal with God, right? I'll do my part. I'll occasionally go to church on Sunday. I might even go to men's study or women's study. I might uh, help people. I'll deliver some sort of C-plus version of my effort, and I expect an A-plus version uh, of of God uh, being good and generous and just uh, abundantly giving towards me, and then I get upset when God doesn't give me abundantly everything that I want, that I think that he's, he's promised. We tend to relate to God in this way, and, and that's not following Jesus. Trying to make a deal with God, trying to coerce God, is not following Jesus. It's what Zach, my four-year-old, does when he says, I won't obey unless you give me a popsicle. Okay? It's, it's not... Uh, it's not following, it's not submitting, it's not yielding uh, to Jesus. And so if you're here today, the first response is a response to Jesus, to make him Lord of your life, to repent and say, I want to follow, help me to follow. If you're here today and, and you've made that decision and you're stuck uh, looking at your circumstances and saying, Ugh, I don't like any of this. If you're looking around and saying, I know God has promised to be with me, but I don't feel it, I don't see it, I kind of see more counter-evidence than I do evidence. It works out for Abram, doesn't it? Works out pretty well. He lives that long life. We see in, in Exodus 2, the groaning of the people of Israel in slavery. It says that, that God heard their cry. He remembered his covenant to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and then he moves to bring them out to bless them in the way that he blesses them, and then to walk with them all the way to and through uh, the promised land despite their grumbling, despite their complaining, despite their doubt and faithful faithlessness. And so isn't it good that we get examples of God walking with his people despite their faithlessness, despite their doubt, despite their confusion, despite even their overreactions to just the slightest inconveniences? If you're here this morning and you're following Jesus uh, and you're thinking God needs great leaders to get his work done here. He doesn't need great leaders. He just asks for obedient followers. And so the push to us is to respond to Jesus and then to just simply be an obedient follower. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. And we claim another promise that your word will not return without doing the things, Lord, that you intend it to do. Uh, that there is, is an active power in your word by which, Lord, your spirit is causing us to hear the things that we need to hear this morning. Identifying uh, sin in our life that needs to be addressed. Identifying faithlessness, Lord, that has masked itself in, in good deeds or applying ourselves without boundaries to all sorts of different spheres and projects and endeavors. Uh, so Lord, would you, you strip us away from our uh, stubborn self-reliance? Would you strip uh, away from us uh, the sense that we have to understand exactly what and why and how everything uh, fits together? Uh, Lord, teach us to not uh, need what is next, but teach us, Lord, faith, peace, joy knowing who's next to us i thank you that you're gentle in that lord that you never waste our pain in jesus name we pray amen